Hey there, Film Buds. Welcome back to the Film Buds podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm Lauren. And we are continuing today our summer movie season. And, you know, there's just something about summer. Uh, It's playful. It's fanciful. You know, we've talked about that a little bit on the show so far this season, if you've been listening with us. But also... And the statistics prove it. When summer comes, so too comes crime. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, You know, with the heat wave comes a crime wave. Uh, The moment that it becomes winter, people go indoors, you know. People hunker down. People get snowed in. uh, And so they don't get the same sort of opportunities. Whereas in the summer, you've got all the time in the world. Uh... And so, since we were doing a whole summer movie season, a whole idea that occurred to us was to do a Crime Wave episode. Yes. Um, but what do you do with crime? You know, kind of as like movie, the moment that you open up the door of crime, you know, like that's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you broke me. <laughs> that's everything, you know? Crime. Um, that's, that's split on a certain level, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, it's kidnapping. So how do you hone it in? And so I decided when I was trying to map things out that the most logical answer was to do a movie that I had never seen that fit the theme for the episode that had a title that fit the overall sort of attitude Heat. Uh, And then off of that, I was like, well, what's another sort of heist movie kind of thing that I like? And I was like, let's do Pain and Gain. (laughs) And that's how we got to today's episode. That is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Were you familiar with either of these films before? Um, I really can't say that I was. Mm -hmm. Um... I'm not really, you know, I learn more and more from you every day. And one of those things is Al Pacino's career. (laughs) It wasn't, Al Pacino wasn't somebody that like, I watched movies with him in it. You know, that just didn't happen growing up. So, um, I had never really heard of Heat, um, prior to this or, um, definitely, definitely not Pain and Gain. It just doesn't seem like something that would be left my mom's alley. Like it's, it's. And it it probably was not going to show up on your father's either. No, 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 because it like you know for for a perp- for appearances' sake, like it looks like a like a stupid movie. It does look on on surface level like a dumb movie. So like yeah, just no no part of that was like of interest to to my household. So um, this was this was nice. It's nice and fresh, you know, going in here with really yeah. no expectations. Uh, so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about overall. Um, you know, I, I, I thought that it would be, you know, sort of a, a, a fun also continuation off of the neo-noir. You know, it's kind of this double crime episode thing mm-hmm. where we're really covering both spectrums mm-hmm. of what a crime film can be. Slow 
simmering, Mm -hmm. seductive versus intense, um, high octane, uh, staccato at times. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think that that was sort of an interesting contrast as well, sort of across the crime genre. Well, you know, it just depends on what drug you want to be on, you know. Do you you want to be on cocaine? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's definitely pain and gain, but we'll talk about that. Um, So, what are your thoughts on, like, robbery and heist films overall? That's kind of the the core focus of what we're doing, right? Are these, these summertime hot city heists? Um... I mean, like, I've seen heist movies before, but they're usually um, kind of like the casino ones, you know, where it's 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 almost like the Oceans movies, even though I've never seen an Oceans movies. But every every movie is, spoof, is, is, is spoofing that same kind of thing, where it's like, there's the main dude, and he pulls all of his friends together, and they do a job together. But they do it so cool, and by the time they're finished explaining it, they're already done doing it. You know, it's, it's, it's perfectly timed and it's trickery and it's like a magic act, you know. Um, but I've also seen movies that, that have had, um, stuff like this. Oh gosh. Um, but it also, it makes me think of like, you know, like bank stuff as well. Mm -hmm. You know, people in masks going into a bank. Inside man. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. I couldn't think of the, (laughs) I couldn't think of the, the, the title. Um, but it's also not really a genre that, like, I purposefully watch a lot of because, like, it's an interest of mine. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, like, I, I watch them and I enjoy them, but also I'm not, I'm not going out of my way. Like, it, it has to be pretty interesting to, to pull me into the, to the shtick a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Because at the end of the day, all crime movies are almost, like, they're hinting at the same kind of things. Well, you know, and and that's the that's the whole thing of movie making is like every genre at the end of the day has a formula, mm-hmm. and uh, what's what's the base formula? Form. Uh, we're gonna go down a language rabbit hole here for just a second. Uh, <laughs> Brought to you by the English teacher, and then uh, young. You know, one of the students of Freud, mm-hmm. who was all about, Freud was all about the subconscious. Jung had this whole theory about the collective uh, sort of subconscious. The shared ancestral sort of um, subconscious ideas that we all have. Everyone has an idea of chair. Mm-hmm. Every culture. The sandwich. You know, and an argument could be made, for example, right, that, like, the taco is a form of sandwich. Mm -hmm. It's a handheld thing. So, uh, it's all about this sort of breakdown analysis of, you know, uh, collective form. And so, form, formula. And so, when you look at movies, every movie, when you really boil it down to whatever its base genre is is following the formula. The question is, what does it do with that formula? How Mm -hmm. does it use those rules? And that's where understanding classical rules of form, any art form, can be helpful in 
breaking those rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at Picasso. Mm-hmm. Picasso knew how to do still lifes very well. He was an incredible realist. And then he, he eschewed all of that for something completely different where he broke every rule because he knew exactly what rules to break but what rules to keep in place at the bare bones of it all. Um, and so that's kind of what you get with, you know, to your point, heist films. And I think the problem is, like, heist films are kind of almost like like rom-coms. Any kind of cop-criminal procedural can quickly become cheap. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I've, I've been trying to wrap my brain around, you know, figuring out a, a heist movie or, like, a crime movie that I really enjoyed. And I think I, th- I, think I thought of one. Um, Logan Lucky. Oh, great movie. Uh, and you know who did that? Who? Steven Soderbergh, who did the Oceans films. Oh, well, see, I think that, you know, well, then maybe it just, it takes the person who invented the wheel to continue the wheel. I mean, I, I know that he didn't invent the wheel, obviously, no. but he he invented a type of the wheel. Yes. Uh, I call Logan Lucky a heist film uh, that moves at a southern stroll. Yeah, I I really enjoy the 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 commitment, you know, to the to the entire um aesthetic of the movie while still being this, you know, high stakes heist movie. But it takes its time. Yeah. Um and honestly like that's by name such a such a hard like action genre for me um to like name <laughs> a movie for um obviously then i just need to expand my 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 viewing preferences a little bit further well we can work on that um i like the genre i do think like i said that it can become cheap um but i think that the ones that really stand out stand out you know hell or high water is a great modern heist robbery story it's a and and it also taps into the western tradition which we'll talk to in a little bit um, of robbery in America, mm-hmm. but it's modern, and I think that it works really well, and it's the law and the criminals rushing right towards each other toward climactic, explosive conclusion, and I think that it works really, really well. Um, and so I think that, again, when you understand the form, mm-hmm. even to its classical roots, you can do so much with it that that you make it exciting. Um, and so that's kind of an overview and I guess also a segue. Because oh. I did mention that America has a long history and American cinema has a long history with robbery. Yes. Yes, indeed. Let's get to it. So uh, one of the first narrative films to introduce... Uh, a fourth wall break, but also be a robbery story, was The Great Train Robbery from 1903. And it's a 12-minute long film. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was made by Edwin S. Porter for the Edison Company. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. And it tells the story of people robbing a train. It's, It's a group of criminals who come rush the train, steal it, you know, and, and ride off. 
uh, and there's, you know, gunfire and excitement. And <laughs> Guaranteed the, excitement. The final shot is one of the robbers, if I'm not mistaken, um, pointing his gun directly at the camera and looking directly into the camera and shooting. Mm. You know. Like the Bond thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so it's considered one of cinema's, for, like, first fourth wall breaks. Oh, interesting. Um, and what year was this again? 1903. Wow, that's just, it just seems so far back. Yeah, for almost, something, it's 119 years ago. Yeah, for something so, um, you know, revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, you know, in the, in the scope of, of human history, still so young as well. Yeah. Um, so thievery, robbery, stealing as a criminal act is, of course, as old as history itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you look back at human history, things that are standouts as far as uh, types of jobs, prostitutes, criminals... Hunters, gatherers, of course. Uh, farmers of some kind, but I guess that's an offshoot of gatherer of a kind. Um, it's a controlled gatherer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, it's as old as, as you can go. And it's conversely, it is also one of the acts that has laws on the books against it. Or talking about it going as far back as as human culture goes. You know, Hammurabi's code had rules about how to handle thieves. And we consider that one of the oldest legal documents, you know, of any kind of legal doctrine to apply to a a governance of a people out there. Well, honestly, you know, if, if we're, you know, saying that this is going back until like the beginning of time pretty much you know these are one of the standard tree things that people do with the other things that you've listed then you know at the end of the day it's just it's the most inherently human thing to do and truthfully if you look at animals you similarly see it animals trying to swoop in and snatch something and run with it yeah you know uh so it happens all the time yeah, it's, well, you know, it could be another mate or, mm-hmm. or you know, a good a good hunting grounds, yeah. etc. Um, and so America's first bank robbery um, is considered by some to be from August 31st or September the 1st. Mm-hmm. It was either that night or that morning. Uh, in 1798, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bank was the Bank of Philadelphia at Carpenter's Hall, and approximately $163,000 were stolen. Wow. Uh, the accused was a blacksmith, Patrick Lyon, who had worked on some hinges and locks for the bank and then left... Uh, and his his journey kind of got waylaid by his apprentice taking sick. Mm. And perfect um, cover. He arrived where he needed to be, and eventually a friend came to visit and told him that he was wanted by the law. He went back, professed his innocence, and he ended up being thrown in prison 
as the robber. Well, it was clearly the sick apprentice. And so, uh, what actually ended up happening was that it, he thought that it was this guy that he thought was shifty back when he was working for the bank. Um, but it actually turned out to be this random dude who like walked through his shop one day and heard about the bank and put together a little group and his name was Isaac Davis and he had another accomplice who died of the plague that was happening at the time and uh, the bank porter Thomas Cunningham and so Thomas Cunningham went to sleep in the bank that night let Isaac Davis and the other people into the bank and the other man into the bank they robbed it, let them out, locked it up Bob's your uncle. Uh, And so they ended up, of course, figuring out that it was them when Davis confessed. uh, They arrested him and started to interrogate him because he started to put the money that he was stealing back into the bank that he stole it from. In, like, savings. Ha! And so people started to realize that this poor schmo had more money than he had ever had before. Mm-hmm. And so he was questioned, he confessed, um, Patrick was let out, he sued. Yeah, he did. Good for him, man. Uh, <laughs> I would've. Now, he did not win his trial until 1805. Jeez. But he won... in restitution. (laughs) (laughs) So, back in 1800s... Wow. Patrick was a rich man. Richer than ever being a blacksmith was gonna get him. Well, yeah. Unless he was, like, purely, you know, doing something else. And he also profited off the story. Oh, You know, he, like, published the story and that kind of thing. And so, like, Patrick made money off of his imprisonment. Well, that's why we have this as, like, our first recorded case. However, some people say that it is not a true robbery because for some people it's more of a burglary. It doesn't involve violence. There's no forced entry. These sorts of things. Um, So for some, the first robbery under those violent or forced terms actually came in Liberty, Missouri uh, at the Clay County Savings Association February 13th, 1866 uh, and it was done by associates of Jesse and Frank James. I'm sure you've heard of Jesse James. Yes. Uh, And it net them a $60,000 haul. Wow. Now, an important thing to note about the Old West, because the Old West is where a lot of outlaw gangs and robberies and and that sort of things, right? Train robberies and bank robberies mm-hmm. and stagecoaches. All of that's associated with that time period. Uh, a lot of outlaw gangs consisted of ex-Confederates and marauders. Okay, yeah, it's it's very interesting that the ex-Confederates are just casually hanging out with the marauders, but... 
Uh, and so what ended up happening is as the South moved further into Reconstruction mm-hmm. and these ex-Confederates that couldn't acclimatize uh, themselves and also could not find stable work, probably also because of their temperament and their refusal to adapt to the times, moved out west and mm-hmm. found themselves in the lawless territories where they could live in this sort of mythical land. You remember the uh, the uh, character in Hateful Eight? Um, who was supposed to be the new sheriff of Red Rock? Yes, 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 yes. And his dad was from the Maddox Marauders. Mm-hmm. And his dad was an ex-Confederate mm-hmm. who formed a group of ex-Confederates into a gang that became the Maddox Marauders. Copy. That was sort of mythologized by this Old West criminal frontier. Fascinating. And so that's kind of what that's calling on. Um, and so, you know, you get like the Cole Younger gang. The Wild Bunch, which included Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and these sorts of people. Um, As the Wild West territories transitioned into statehood, though, you started to see, of course, the death of the Old West gangs, which is some of what you see in, like, Red Dead 2. Mm -hmm. Um, However, there was another period, another big period of American bank robbery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that came about in the 20th century in the wake of the Depression and and that sort of thing. Oh, that makes perfect sense. So, the early, th- early 20th century kind of um, set up a, a hotbed of criminality when you really look at, like, the framework of the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. There is s- civil unrest on a certain level, right? You still have the the upheaval of the Civil War and people mm-hmm. upset about that. You have um, the women's temperance movement, the women's right to vote movement. You've got World War One. The early 20th century is a lot mm-hmm. um, on a lot of levels. You have growing wealth disparity. Yes. You have people working long hours, the conditions of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Mm-hmm. And so uh, modernization caused a whole big boom. A lot of people were brought together, and it brought its own set of problems as well, as people were suddenly sandwiched together in ways that they had never been before. And um, ultimately all of this fuels... Um, uh, a sort of shift as well because you have these this immigrant influx that's happening in this century as well that's continuing essentially from the 1800s, right? I mean, you had a massive... I mean, Ellis Island was open for years. And so you've got this massive modernization, this massive boom, this influx of immigrants, this massive wealth disparity women wanting rights, uh, you know, black people in the, in the wake of the slavery era, 
also wanting all of the things that are afforded to everyone else. Uh, you've got the influx of, as we talked about in our AAPI month, the influx of Asian immigrants into the West. You've got the West expanding. It's chaos, you know. Mm. Um, it's a lot happening. And it creates all sorts of problems of, you know, nationalism, substance abuse, uh, and, and dependency, and, and all of these other underlying social issues that create a hotbed of, of criminality and all of the other social issues that are a result of all of, all of these sort of problems mashing together all at, all at the wrong ways, all in the wrong times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get things like Prohibition and the Great Depression, which also only then fuel the rise of criminality, because now criminals have something to sell that people want. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants it. They know how to make it. And they're the only ones who can supply it. Mm-hmm. That's why the war on drugs doesn't work, but that's a different monologue. Um, and then you have things like the Great Depression, which only exacerbate, right? The, the, the Roaring Twenties come to a halt. And there was already the haves and the have-nots, and that only gets worse and worse. Um, which makes people turn to desperation. And also, inside of all of this, you have poor immigrant communities that go and start to form their own organized groups to protect themselves, to protect the neighborhood, which ends up turning into what becomes known as organized crime. And, you know, at the same time, you also have people running in the government on anti-crime and on a return to normalcy. And it ends up creating the early forms of federal law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And so... All of this plays out in this whole sort of of way that ultimately leads to a whole bunch of people that decide that criminality is a legitimate option. Mm-hmm. Capone's getting away with it. The rich are getting away with it. Mm-hmm. I can get away with it. And there's a weak or non-existent federal body so I can do it from state to state and bounce around. And if I'm fast and if I'm never caught, then I could get away with it. Mm-hmm. And it creates the new wave of American bank robbers. And so with that also, of course, is, like I said, the creation of the first early federal law enforcement And they decide, in a stupid way, (laughs) to go and designate the major criminals public enemy number one. Mm. And they love it. It's a badge of honor now. I'm the most wanted man in America. I'm public enemy number one. And it feeds into... You know, I mean, you want to talk about, like, us regularly feeding into the criminal cycle. Um, You know, these designations reward the behavior on a certain level. Yeah. And it draws attention to them, and they become celebrities. Mm Mm-hmm. Much like how certain serial killers, right, have cult followings, certain bank robbers become 
celebrities. Well, yeah, they were kind of like on the on the gum cards, you know, that you would get. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the collectibles. Yeah. And uh, some of these people include people that you have heard of. Mm-hmm. For example, Bonnie and Clyde. That's correct. Babyface Nelson. Uh-huh. Pretty Boy Floyd. Yeah. The original... The OG, mm-hmm. Machine Gun Kelly, <laughs> I'm glad and of course, clarified. Public Enemy number one himself, who Michael Mann, director of Heat, made a movie about, John Dillinger. Just sounds like um the forgotten Beatle. <laughs> and so, um, also of course, at this time is where J. Edgar Hoover cuts his teeth. Okay. His bureau oversees the arrest or killing of all of these figures, which is what gives him the power that leverages him to create the FBI that leads to COINTELPRO in the 60s. This is where he got that authority, is with the successful capture or killing of all of these bank robbers and all of these organized crime figures in the 30s and 40s. Copy. Which, by the way, are largely done by people that are not actually J. Edgar Hoover. For example, John Dillinger's arrest was done by uh, Melvin Purvis. That's a a less interesting sounding name. (laughs) And so that's a little bit of background, right? And a hotbed for some of this crime is Chicago. Mm-hmm. I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> so with that kind of background in American crime and robbery and heist and how it's baked into our DNA, really. Yeah. Um, and we've glorified these people with their nicknames. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Jesse James gang, you know, John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, all of this stuff. And mytho- it was a mythology. Of its own kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with that, we move into Heat. And a little bit of background on its director, Michael Mann. Um, so first thing that I do want to say about Heat is that it is a remake. It is a remake of a TV pilot that he shot that was converted into a TV movie. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the characters are different, but a lot of the law enforcement characters are the same. Okay. Um, the criminals got amalgamized. Oh, interesting. Uh, Michael Mann was born February 5th. What time period were we just talking about? The 20s and the 30s, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Michael Mann was born February 5th, 1943 in Chicago, Illinois. Oh. Uh, which was also the city of who? Capone, right? That's correct. One Alphonse Capone. Yeah. Woo. So, um, man was born in the in one of America's chief criminal cities. Nice. With some of its biggest myths. That's that's fine. That's where you want to be. Uh, Michael Mann is a writer, director, producer, and he was growing up, you know, in the years where they were being arrested, being talked about. Mm-hmm. They were legend. You know, it was like Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and he is known for his work in the crime genre, Michael Mann. Mm -hmm. Some of his films include Thief, Manhunter, which is the first Hannibal Lecter film, The Last of the Mohicans, The Insider, Collateral, Public Enemies, and he is the producer of the original Miami Vice TV show and also oversaw and directed the adaptation into the movie. Okay, okay. Um, Mann began as a English lit major. He went and got his master's in the London Film School in 1967. Grew up as a contemporary with Ridley Scott, shooting uh, commercials and music videos and that sort of thing in, in England. Um, came back to America when his marriage ended. Uh, and so he came back in the early uh, 70s, 71 to be precise. Um, and he started working on a lot of cop-centric projects, Starsky and Hutch. Mm-hmm. Uh, police story with Joseph Wambaugh. That's a little <laughs> Mindhunter reference for y'all. Um, and he also wrote a draft for a movie called Straight Time. And then his career really, of course, blew up in the 80s with a TV movie called The Jericho Mile, Miami Vice, the TV show, and his James Caan film starring film, uh, The Thief. Rest in peace to James Caan. So that's a little bit of background on Michael Mann overall. Uh, Heat was released December 15th, 1995. It runs for two hours, 50 minutes. Uh, it had a budget of 60 million. It's rated R. It was written and directed by Michael Mann. And it stars Al Pacino as Vincent Hanna, Rob De Niro as Neil McCauley, Val Kilmer as Chris Charles, Diane Venora as Justine, Amy Brenneman as Edie, and Ashley Judd as Charlene Charles. And the plot is, a group of high-end professional thieves start to feel the heat from the LAPD when they unknowingly leave a clue at their latest heist. Dun dun. Bum bum. Um... Normally, I, I do turn this over to you, but I'm actually going to jump into this one, like, full bone. I've got a lot to... I've, I'm, 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 feeling, I'm feeling up to it. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're feeling up to it, all by right. all means. Allow me. Wow. Oh. Oh, he's serious. Oh, he's serious. Okay. So this movie has long been billed as a masterpiece, as, as one of the must sees you know um it's finally pacino and de niro together um this movie is so talked about i've heard this movie brought up so much and yet never once did anyone ever show me a clip not once in any of a, a single class did I ever take did anyone show this movie. And yet it was hyped up to death as this thing. And maybe it's just that I've seen 
too much that has been inspired by it. Um, or maybe it's that I saw Michael Mann's actual literal masterpiece, which is Collateral with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx and Mark Ruffalo and Javier Bardem. But, um, this movie was too fucking long. <laughs> this movie was too long by a mile. Um, and I love a long movie. I think Hateful Eight is a great movie. That's a long ass in the tooth movie. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a great movie. That is a long ass movie. That's a fact. That is a fact. If you were going to take up my time to the degree that you were hitting three hours, four hours, whatever. I need that time to, even if it feels long, feel worth it. Mm-hmm. And, um, ultimately I think that this came from a TV show idea that he said I can convert into a movie and I think that it was the stupidest thing that he could have ever done with the concept because the notion that you could take your original TV movie length idea and then add in another movie length's idea for the criminal side and just moosh them together into a three-hour experience was, I think, a little bit misguided. Uh, and honestly, if this is his masterpiece, unimpressed. Wow. And especially because everyone talks about Pacino and De Niro, and I know that they have a real-life friendship that lasts years. It goes back 50 years, their friendship. Um, and so by that metric, you know, by this point, they were 20, 30-odd years into that friendship. And boy, howdy, does that scene not fucking read an ounce of it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. They're giving their all, and yet, despite the movie's title of Heat, it's as cold as a dead fish. If it weren't for their performances, what's feeding that scene? Nothing. And honestly, I'm not even really sure that they're feeding each other. And that's where I'm going to leave that for right now. What are your thoughts on Heat? Woo! Boy, howdy. Wow. <laughs> Wowie, I haven't wow. come out the gate swinging like that in a while, but... Oh my god, you put on your big boy pants today. <laughs> you said, I'm, I'm not fucking around. <laughs> um, so, what is there to say about heat that has not been said? Um, this movie is long because it has too many plots. It has, it has too much plot. It has Everybody has a plot and a subplot and a plot underneath the subplot that you forgot was there until they went, you remember this? It's important now for no reason whatsoever. Hank fucking Azaria. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, and, like, honestly, um, I think that we have, we, have, we have too many lead people. We've got the, those, like, weird trope thing happening. We've got the triad happening, honestly. Um, or we've got... Al Pacino is our our shitty cop who's who's maybe abusive in his relationship, but he doesn't matter because he's a cop and he's the good guy. Um, we've got Robert De Niro playing um, 
I'm just kind of in my 50s now, criminal guy who just, maybe, maybe he'll quit. Or maybe he won't. Maybe this is the life for him. He hasn't really decided yet. He's going through a midlife crisis. Um, and then, and then there's Val Kilmer's character, who is, um, A piece of shit. Like, he just kind of sucks. Yeah, he's this, his, this young dude who's a hothead, who, who is, has a problem with gambling, and his wife is, is getting back at him by, by becoming a hooker. Um, and they have a child, and it's just a lot of things happening, and everybody has their, their love interest thing happening, you know. And it's just a lot there, and, and then, and then we have a plot that, that is like a month-long endeavor in real time, but that they condensed into this, this film where honestly, at the end of the day, I don't think that anybody's love interest actually really mattered whatsoever. We could have, we could have, no offense, ladies, we could have cut your, your parts in half, and it would have been exactly the same movie. Um... Because every time we went to them, it slowed everything down. It it completely halted any progress that we were going to. And none of their relationships were engaging. No, they were all just bad relationships. They were cardboard cutout people. Yeah, even even Al Pacino finding finding this woman that he found really interesting also just didn't feel real. Like it just out of nowhere, she comes up to him in the in the bar, and they just start to chat, and then they just can't stop chatting until they have sex, and um. Honestly, there was a lot of, of, of maybe they're in their 40s to 50s men having, like, sex in these movies. This movie with, with, with hot ladies. Um, well, and, and, and if I may, um, the most likable out of them all was De Niro. Yes. But, without getting into spoilers, he completely, by the end of the movie, burns out my likability for him. Well, no, I think that that's fair, because he makes literally just one bad decision. And it's the stupidest one that is also, for who he has presented is his character, is the most nonsensical in the world. And it's, I think, the most contradictory to some of what he has presented a little bit. No, yeah, um, the tables definitely turn around, and then one character has no character development really whatsoever. And, and overall, you know, after De Niro, if you looked at me and said, who's your next favorite character, I would go, I don't know, maybe Tom Sizemore, just because he doesn't say a lot, and then he die. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, spoiler, I don't care. Um, and so... Like, I think that for me, there's nothing grounding Pacino's character in ethos or likability. You know, you look at, like, Michael Cor, and I guess he's supposed to be the bad guy, but... He is, he is the bad guy. He is. But it's not even, for me, like, worth watching at a certain point because we're subjected to so many scenes of him doing the same thing and he gets away with it in the end, and I guess that's maybe supposed to be the whole thing, but, like, I didn't find any of the characters engaging enough. You can be unlikable, but you need to be engaging. Mad Men is chalked to the brim with people doing awful things to each other all of the time. Bad people 
inhabit Mad Men constantly. This movie has got you all hot and bothered. It's cracking me up. <laughs> you are so offended that this movie exists for how long it is. I mean, honestly, it's it's almost three hours long. Like I think I'm more offended. We could cut offended. an entire hour out of this movie, and I would not miss a thing of it. And maybe this isn't the movie's fault. And maybe one day I'll circle back around to Heat and feel better about Heat. But I think, honestly, some of the problem is that, like, and 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 maybe this is honestly me coming into it, I guess, a little bit as, like, a late viewer on Heat or whatever. Um, it's hyped too much for what it is. Well, okay. Um, and I guess to speak on that a little bit, it's it's because it's because of the the places that you you frequent. You know, mm-hmm. you you talk about film with film people, so obviously film people are going to talk about this three hour long movie that only a few people want to watch and sit through for that long because they're dedicated film people. Like I totally totally understand that. Whereas me, the theater nerd, has literally never heard of this movie in 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 any shape or form ever. So obviously, you know, maybe 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 dumb down your tastes a little bit. <laughs> no, yeah. Um I don't know. I just I I think that people are really really drawn into the the oddness that is the Pacino character. Um his his very dual personality that happens where he's either completely shut off and not interested in anything or he's a raving lunatic um who just shot up a whole bunch of something through the veins and is really ready to go yeah. kick some ass. Um and there's it's it's a it's a really disjointed performance um and the movie really doesn't it's really leaning into like him just being a character right mm-hmm. and um not actually having anything to do whereas like Pacino in in the Godfather is it grows to to having layers of who Michael Corleone is and you see this evolution of this of this boy who, who didn't want any part of the life to the man running the world, you know, um, the, the next in line. And, and this movie has none of that. Yeah. This movie has absolutely none of that. It is just flashy, big performance. He, he walked in there and he said, I'm only doing one take today, guys, and this is it. And they all said, we'll figure it out in post. And that was just that. And then, and then we've just got this weird, um, like the the likable bad guy going on with uh with Robert De Niro who's just who's just kind of sad you know like he's mm-hmm. just he's just some dude who's who's a little lonely but won't admit it and his storyline completely slows everything down but like maybe you know I needed I needed either or I needed it to be like this young dude with Val Kimmer in this life and him just trying to, you know, love this woman and get out on top, you know, it kind of be almost being like a Fast and Furious movie where where the cop is the bad guy. Like, I just think that there are too many leads, there are too many storylines, and it just gets really, really bogged down by all of the stuff that he was like, oh yeah, and this, oh yeah, and also Natalie Portman is in this movie, oh yeah, she doesn't matter at all. No, I mean, like, big spoiler alert here. Um, not that it amounts to anything in the plot necessary, even in the slightest. So I guess it's almost really not even a spoiler, but, like, I guess a content warning as well. Graphic teen violence. 
Uh, Natalie Portman's character, her the, the, the teenage stepdaughter, tries to kill herself in his tub. Yeah. And it's from, the most do-fucking-nothing-element. From a sub-sub-sub-subplot of the fact that her real dad never wants to hang out with her. And, but and that s- wasn't necessary for the plot of this movie. Like, no. Where exactly, where is the heat? Because it never felt like the the cops were actually on top of anything. And in the end, everything just falls apart because people make dumb decisions. Yeah, if anything, it feels more that, that, um, that things just went wrong in an unlucky way than it feels that Al Pacino really won the day. No, yeah, honestly, honestly, maybe maybe this is the point. Maybe maybe his stumble to success is is making a point about our 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 Fuck me. I mean, I our guess system, maybe. you know, because it feels like sometimes that just happens. But no, I just to your point, I do not understand why people really talk about this movie. I'm I'm totally just like it's it's fine. It's definitely not something that I like. We'll probably watch again in the next decade. No, I get that. Because, like, eh. I've, I've seen better versions of this movie. I've played better versions in Grand Theft Auto V. Oh, yeah. Grand Theft Auto V is a better version of this movie. Well, and, and I will say this about Grand Theft Auto V. Like, it makes no bones, and neither does Dan Hauser about the fact that, like, he wears all of his influences on his sleeve. Yeah, but it's more interesting. And the characters um, and are more likable. Yeah, and and more... Oh, Jesus, we didn't even talk about fucking this. Dennis fucking Haysbert. I don't even know who that is right now. The That's Franklin of the story. Oh, the black dude. The black dude doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you right now. This movie is about three white men, and, <laughs> and they're all of the ethnic friends die. The men, end. Men, 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 men. I, I saved you guys three whole hours of being <laughs> like, oh, maybe he's going to be interesting, and then them killing him five minutes later. You go, Remember oh, Danny Trejo? Danny Trejo. Oh, there he Trejo. <laughs> like, ah, oh, it's so sad. Like, I was so excited about Danny Trejo in this movie. And they did a whole... Mm, Waste a, of Danny Trejo. They did a whole group shot. Three... It was like it was like the spoke circle in that 70s show of a shot. And then they never looked at Fez or Danny Trejo. They, it was like that happened. And then they... It was like they forgot he was there. Uh, honestly, um, Danny Trejo almost gets the, the Sam Jackson Goodfellas treatment. Mmm... Uh, he, the only difference is that he gets lines. Um, and so, uh, Uh, and so, uh, I will say this, uh, or I will ask this question before we, we sort of wrap this up. You know, like I said, people love the, um, the De Niro Pacino element of this. If I were to tell, if I were to ask you, you know, this question, who are two actors that would get you as hype as people back in the 90s got as hype for Pacino and De Niro? I have no idea. Um... We're making a modern action movie. Oh, it's now it's gotta be an action movie? Jesus sure, Christ. why not? Ah. And we're bringing together. 
action movie with somebody and the other one. Um, I don't know. At one point in time, it probably would have had The Rock in it, but I'm not so sure anymore. I can I can throw you my two picks. Okay, that's fine. Like that's fine. my Pacino and De Niro right now, I guess, would probably be um, Daniel Kaluuya. Okay. And Adam Driver. Oh, that's interesting. That would be a, a pairing that I think would get me really excited because I think that these actors for me are kind of at the same. Obviously, they're not as far in their career, but like I get a lot of, of energy off of their sort of performances, and I think that it would be well, really as exciting. far in their career, this movie is about two old fuckers mm-hmm. and this young dude. Yeah. Who's a hothead. So you just... This movie is targeted for people who are over 40 years old, minimum. You have to be... You have to be 50 to ride the ride. Yeah, I mean, Michael Mann, to your point, this is 1995. Michael Mann... He was, was born, born in the 40s. In uh, 19... 19- 43. Yeah, so this man was 50, what, 52 years old? Mm-hmm. It feels like a movie that's for old dudes who are like, I got kids. <laughs> so, like, I watch these movies to make me feel excited about stuff again because I've got <sighs> kids. Life didn't go the way I planned. I thought I was going to play football in it forever until I got my bum knee the third quarter out of my 10th year of doing that or something. I don't know sports um but those are probably two actors that like if you if you told me that they were doing something together i would be like oh shit i've got a i've got a joke one i guess I yeah don't know. lay I was, it on I, me. I was having a really hard time lay the joke on me thinking of a serious one give, it's, give it's gonna be it's gonna be meryl streep uh-huh. and john cena ha they're okay. gonna figure it out <laughs> It's going to be an odd couple thing where, um, I don't know, maybe they're handcuffed together, like he's the robber and she's the, the hostage, or it's the other way around, oh, who knows. And and they have to odd couple it through the situation in order to get themselves out of said situation. Trademarked for me, if anybody steals this idea, I'm coming for you with lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think that that's all really fair. Um... So, with all that said, uh, if you had to rate Heat out of five, what would you give it? I'm going to give this movie um, the same amount of time it exists in the world. A two and a half. Mm. Um, yeah, same. <laughs> uh, Perfect. You know, and, and if any of you are out there listening this listening to this uh aghast you know how dare he how could he i would suggest that like michael jackson once said you start with the man in the mirror uh because if there's anything that brought down heat for me it's probably any one of you who are sitting here shitting your brains out over the fact that I dare give it a two and a half. I think you're lucky I don't give it a one and a half. You're so defensive <laughs> right now. These th- these people are theoretical. People don't talk to us. Nobody has left us a th- question in ages. And that's actually also true. So, so it's really just us talking into the void right now. But no. Uh, if you like heat, it's totally fine. I understand why you might. But... 
Uh, I think for me, meh. Oh, right. Uh, now we shall move on to Pain and Gain. Woo! Uh, very different filmmaker, Michael Bay. <laughs> very different energy entirely. <laughs> uh, and so Pain and Gain is loosely inspired by real events. Uh, they took place in Florida during the 90s. It was first published in the Miami New Times by writer Pete Collins. Uh, it was adapted by uh, Stephen Marcus and Christopher McFeely, who wrote the Captain America trilogy and the uh, Infinity War and Endgame uh, films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... They took the overall structure, apparently, primarily, and then played fast and loose, smushed some characters together, uh, and, and changed up a few of the, of the key events uh, along the way. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very loose adaptation, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um... Like I said, it was directed by Michael Bay. It was released April 26, 2013. Uh, it has a two-hour, nine-minute runtime. It's rated R. Uh, it was... Uh, or it stars uh, Mark Wahlberg, Dwayne Johnson, Anthony Mackie, Bar Pally, Tony Shalhoub, and Ed Harris. And the plot is... A trio of bodybuilders in Florida get caught up in an extortion ring and a kidnapping scheme that goes terribly wrong. <laughs> What's so funny to me about that that plot description is that it makes it seem like some outside force drew them in. Yeah. Um, and that's all that I'll say about that. Uh, dear, what did you think of Pain and Gain? This movie is insane. Um... There were times while watching this movie where I wasn't sure whether or not um, Michael Bay was making a joke or not. Like, maybe maybe he was serious, or maybe these people were were completely fictitious and, you know, were very stereotype this kind of person. Honestly, a lo- everybody in this movie is like, if, if on a scale of 1 to 10, being 10 the smartest, I think that everybody, like, tapped out at, like, maybe a 5, maybe a 6 of, like, the smartness. <laughs> Just across the board of, like, literally every character in this movie. Except for Ed Harris. I think that Ed Harris is the is our lightning rod, like, the only sane person, actually, in this film. Yeah. Um... And I, I, this, the, I loved this movie. This movie was a crazy roller coaster ride of um, sheer, sheer like cocaine driven insanity. Um, I think that Mark Wahlberg is. I understand completely where where um, Ted comes from. You know, I think that this movie is is a really nice like bright spot in Mark Wahlberg's career where it's like a lot of the, like the same kind of character. Where it's in this, he gets to make fun of the very character he gets typecast for. And he's doing a great job. He he's so funny. Um, 
and so genuine and so honest and i think that that's what makes the character that much like the just the funnier to watch is is watching this man you know think that he has figured it out and is gonna make this entire plot and this heist is gonna go perfectly and because he he he's a doer and that's 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 his main thing and he's got a lot of he's got a lot of energy and he's got a lot of um self-assuredness and that brings him into his band of friends, played by Anthony Mackie and Dwayne the Pebble Johnson. One of his last great acting roles. No, honestly, I think that I think that Dwayne does a phenomenal job in this. I think that he's really funny. Um, this is a just. I understand where this one fell in his like original outlook of I'm gonna do family friendly things where it's like yeah he goes through his his crazy stint with drugs for a little bit there but like he's he's the one who's who's going back to Jesus you know very religious bodybuilder man and so I understand where he was like oh but it, it's it's a it's a smidge family friendly yeah it still allows me to finish the good guy exactly exactly but i wish that um i wish that he would do more stuff like this because it's so daring at times for him yeah he's having a really good time and i think that it's like a nice safe space because also like everybody is a little dumb in this movie so he doesn't really have to you know do anything extraordinary in this film in order to to be to succeed honestly he just has to to be likable Mm-hmm. And I think that he does a successful job. Oh, too many S's. Um, a successful job in Pain and Gain. Um, honestly, like, this movie was just bananas to watch. True, true thriller roller coaster ride of this. What else are they possibly going to do? You know, it can't possibly go any further than this. The The line is here, and then we're going to figure out where we're going to go from there. When they got arrested, I just wasn't prepared. <laughs> Um, because it just doesn't feel real. This feels like, um, you know, if Heat is exactly, um, Grand Theft Auto, then then this is what Grand Theft Auto got turned back into a movie into. And yeah, this. If, if, if Heat is Grand Theft Auto, then, then Pain and Gain is Saints Row. Yes, there we go. There we go. Like, this is, this is the next devolve it's a little bit dumber but also for that maybe a little bit funner yeah you're having way more fun it's less serious entirely you can do crazy things you know um he convinces so many people that they're like spies and crap (laughs) because of also michael bay versus michael mann's style the michaels it's so poppy in its color you know it's so saturated and you know going on our heat index you know of of the movies that we've been discussing Mm -hmm. previously uh uh all the president's men was our our coldest on the hot summer movie Honestly, I think that Heat... For me, Heat is our is our new coldest. Yeah, yeah. which is so ironic if because that's, it's called Heat. Right? If that's a zero now, then, uh, like, All the President's Men is a three. Yeah, okay. You know, and so then Pain and Gain, right, if Do the Right Thing is still our ten. Uh-huh. Um, then I would say Pain and Gain solidly falls somewhere in the, like, nine to eight No, yeah, spectrum. I think that it is, like, a really solid 
um, summer movie because it's all about also you know the context of who these people are you know bodybuilders yeah they're bodybuilders in florida and it's you know it's sweat yeah it's it's all about you know working for for a goal and i think that that's that's such a great motif as well like throughout the entire movie is this like you have a goal in mind you're gonna work really hard and you're gonna get that goal and that's like what he says to all of his prospective clients well and what's so interesting is that the most successful that they were at their criminal endeavor was when they were trying their hardest. And the moment that they all try to take shortcuts like one might do in a workout mm-hmm. or a diet plan or, or anything in life is when they start to get sloppy and make mistakes that end up costing them their success. Yeah, no, for sure. And so it ultimately is him going against actually what he says, but he's also an unreliable narrator. Well, yeah. He's he's lying to himself just as much as he's lying to other people. No, yeah, and it's also this, like, really interesting view on, like, this, this, the fragility of this hyper-masculine outlook, you know, these... This guy, he he broke so easily, so quickly, just because like one person didn't believe him, and that was it. That was that was it. He he finally met somebody who was who was actually smarter than him, and he didn't know how to handle it. And he freaks out. And um, you know, I I think that Mark Wahlberg does a great job at. Um, finding a natural place for all of his outbursts to come from. Yeah, yeah. Um I I guess I equate them to like almost tantrums. Like they're very yeah. um they're very fueled from like an honest place to your point and it and it really really the whole performance is really just like so smooth and so effortless because like you just you just believe that this is who he is. I believe he is who he is more than I believe Anthony Mackie is that guy. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like Anthony Mackie. Anthony like, Mackie having a is almost time. too smart. Yeah, he's having a harder at time. At playing so dumb. Exactly, exactly. Where Mark Wahlberg knows he like and he has Dwayne a Johnson as yeah, well. Yeah, they have a picture of who they want, who they're supposed to be in their heads, and they're like, "This is it." And the Mackie character, I think, also kind of gets undercut, even though it's a good line. His character and his ability to be believably dumb and believably an accomplice gets undercut the moment that he's like. I knew that Danny didn't know what he was fucking talking about. Well, yeah, but and like the fact that he was just like, I'm just gonna go along. But I'm with yeah, it I'm just anyway. gonna do it. Yeah, because what else am I doing? I guess is. And maybe that's I guess meant to be again the point of the character, but I I feel like Anthony Mackie as a as a performer is not able to go to that place of. I've hit rock bottom enough that even though I don't believe this fucking idiot for half a second. Like, I'm willing to... He's right. I do deserve a piece. Like, I don't think that he gets me to that place. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that that's completely fair. Um, Surprise Rebel Wilson uh, appearance. I was not prepared at all for um, early... How'd Rebel do for you? 2010's Rebel. Honestly, she wasn't bad. She wasn't bad. I I think I prefer her in this to like like the Pitch Perfect movies. I think there's just too much. Rebels like best roles for me are like 
Um, this, um, bridesmaids. Oh, okay. That's fair. That's fair. Um, but I think that again, there was this, um, this honesty to the performance, you know, she was being funny without having to try to be funny. And I think that in a lot of stuff, she's like putting on this like, oh, it's me. I'm Rebel Wilson. Like, I'm a gag. Yeah. Where in, in this, it had to it had to have the seriousness of the fact that like, the you know, Anthony Mackie's character falls in love with her, you know, and, and there, there has to be like real life goals happening. And she has to also have like a character growth as well. You know, she can't just be like the, the quirky friend who, who never gets the boy. So that way she can just be kind of like quirky and ugly, you know? Yeah. Um, in real life, uh, her character was more of a direct accomplice. Oh. Uh, and also the, I guess I should also address this in real life. Uh, Adrian Dorball, the um, Anthony Mackie character, is the only one that is, like, directly, exactly just his character. Um, the Danny Lugo character was actually uh, a Hispanic man. Okay. Um, and the Paul Doyle character is an amalgam of a few different people. Okay. Into one. Um... And so those are some of the differences. Um, also, just as a random fun note, the 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 Tony Shalhoub character, the guy that they kidnap and, mm -hmm. and torture, oh, does a great job, by the way. Yeah, Tony Shalhoub does a great. Tony Shalhoub, the only reason he wasn't brought up is because he's never the issue. No, there's no notes for Tony Shalhoub, honestly, ever. He's perfect. Wonderful. Come see the movie to watch him. I'll I'll never critique. Don't you dare. Even in Spy Kids. No, perfect. So, uh, his character was in real life, and I know that I just snorted a little bit. It's because there's there's a little bit of, of irony uh, at at foot. Um, his his real life counterpart was in fact tortured, you know, kidnapped, all of that attempted murder on his life, survived it, went through the whole ordeal, all of these people were imprisoned, uh, and then very briefly after all of the ordeal was said and done, his character was arrested and, and tried for, or his, the, the real person was, uh, arrested and tried for fraud. Oh my god! It's because of the <laughs> offshore accounts, right? Probably. I mean, if I'm being completely frank, I'm certain that there were probably some vaguely suspicious things afoot at play there. Yeah, but he was so um, mad about the things that happened to him and he wanted justice that it kind of slipped all of these other things that he had been hiding in his closets. Uh, and so his, his character ended up um, right at the mercy of the law. Very, very shortly thereafter oh that's that's pretty gold um honestly yeah no Tony Shalhoub fantastic job um if the real life dude was anything like Tony um he sucked yeah um a few there are a few questions that I did have sort of off of this movie we've watched some documentary we've watched some narrative nonfiction. 
which do you prefer as, I guess, a method? Um, and which do you think is, is, I guess, um, just in like the, the, yeah. And which I guess do you, do you consider? Yeah. The more, the more accessible. Um, oh, oh gosh. Okay. Well then they have reverse answers. Um, I, I really love documentaries. I find documentaries to be fascinating because at the end of the day, it is, it is, it is something real. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something fabricated and and put with a bunch of filters on it or or um, you know, a lot of CG things thrown in it to make it look a certain way. Like it's it's its own spectacle for whatever it is, and this is it. This is as plain as it can get. It's it's almost like the news, except it doesn't always have to be about sad things. You know, it can be about anything, and I always really enjoy um, a good documentary. Um, but which do I think is more accessible? I do think that like something like this is more accessible or, you know, like a biopic or something like that is a more accessible way of seeing, you know, a historical event or something that's real. And um, it's because it's, it's bite sized. It's 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 tailored perfectly to to um, tell me exactly what I need to know of said event without, you know, getting any of the the fluff or the the nonsense in there and you know maybe i maybe i maybe i twist the the truth a little bit but to make it more interesting as a story but at the end of the day it's still like this based off of true events Mm. um so yeah okay no i think that that's i think that's all very fair um i think that strangely you know when you're a kid I think that you can be so open to just anything mm-hmm. um, that you can watch musicals or documentaries or certain things without ever really thinking twice about what you're, you're just watching TV. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that sometimes some of the, some of the mental layers and some of the mental blockages just come from either a lack of exposure or eventually someone telling you from outside, you know, that that's not something to watch. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point, the documentaries that you grew up watching are kids programming. Mm-hmm. First, documentaries, second. And so it's like you you sort of like unplug or, or disengage from that sort of methodology of storytelling. And so I think that sometimes... You know, unless you engaged with it in some sort of other direct way, it can it can sometimes be a little bit jarring, you know, especially because it isn't reality TV either. That's different. Um, I do think you're right about the accessibility. I think that ultimately the ideal, you know, as a consumer of both, is both. Yeah. You know, I remember, and I, I tell you about it all the time, we talk about it all the time, how... One weekend I was home alone and I started watching uh, American Crime Story, The People vs. OJ. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is so fascinating. I'm so drawn in. These characters are incredible. I wish I really fully understood. What was going on? The depth of this. Mm-hmm. Because this has weight to everyone that is telling this story. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in the wake of OJ, but I'm really now realizing that I don't know what the fuck any of it means. 
Well, yeah, because it was just right before us. Yeah, and I just heard the jokes, the white bronco and all of that. Yeah. And so, you know, I went back and I watched The People vs. OJ. I binged it. And in one whole week, and I binged that whole documentary and that whole series because it just hooked me. Mm-hmm. The whole thing. And once I knew the real history, and then that fictional history on the screen, done so well, done so richly, played so much better. Yeah. No, for sure. You have to have the context. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, that's kind of how I fell into the, the Ted Bundy um, mm-hmm. docu-series on Netflix one time when I was, you know, I was in New York and needed something to watch. And I only had a Netflix subscription, so I just started to peruse Netflix, and I really just kind of got drawn to things that were like that, uh, about topics that I, I wanted to expand my knowledge of. And I knew that Ted Bundy was, you know, this 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 criminal figure, and I was like, all right, you know, I don't know anything about him, I'm going to watch this series. And I thought I found it fascinating, because it's also, you know, it, it's true. All of the stuff that happened, you know, regardless of the way that they snitch, the, they stitch the narrative together, you know, these are the events in the the order in which it happened, by by people who either lived, um, you know, in the vicinity of it, knew Bundy or knew one of the victims or was a survivor. So yeah, to your point, you know, it's it's, I think that there's the 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 good and the the bad with it as well. You know, I think that there's good with the the people versus OJ, the the TV show, mm-hmm. but then there's also the value in the the mini series as well, the docu series mm-hmm. that that breaks it down even further. You know, it's kind of like what we just went through almost with um with Fosse Verdon versus all that oh, jazz. all that jazz. You know, it's condensed, fictional, fantastical. Someone's biography of him, and then his own sort of self biography. Yeah, exactly. Mooshed together into... You know, an outside perspective versus an inward perspective. You know, they're both true, but they're also, you know, not. True-ish. True-ish. True-adjacent. Well, and, you know, that's sort of, to go on a little bit of a very brief tangential, that's kind of some of the whole fun of Fargo's based on a true, or, you know, this is a true story. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of every movie, at the beginning of all those seasons, this is a true story. It is true that it is a story. You know, or but... or the the whole this is a true story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 an exaggeration of what kind of story it is. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it's it's seeing is believing. Mm-hmm. It is true enough. Mm-hmm. You know. Um. And that's, that's, I think, also some of the brilliance of Fargo is, like, when you go and you watch something like Pain and Gain, which is legitimately based on a true story, and then you get into, you know, something like Fargo, which just uses that sort of implication of this is a true story. Mm-hmm. This it's is a like, tale. This is a yarn. Yeah, it's kind of like the beginning of, um... Like the Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. you know, episodes where they're like gonna go take you on an adventure kind this of. This is stranger than fiction. Mm-hmm. It's true. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's kind of where it really you know sort of sort of excels, but also can cause some of that that dissonance where if you're not careful, yeah, as a viewer, you know, you can also sort of run amok. Um, 
And so with all of that, I guess, in mind, um, I did also want to ask, do you think that there are certain types of true stories that shouldn't be told? Or do you think that true stories that haven't been told yet are only not told because of their proximity to the event? Do you have, like, an example? Okay. Some people are still very uncomfortable watching a fictional depiction of 9-11. I think it just depends on the person. Okay. In that, in that context, you know, if, you know, for us it's harder because we lived through the event, but for the next generation after us, it's not hard to watch a 9-11 thing, you okay. know, unless unless that is the type of person that you are. Mm-hmm. And so that was, I guess, sort of at my core. Do you think that there are any true stories that should never be told? Like it's too taboo to adapt it? Or do you think it's just a question of proximity to the event? Um, I think at the end of the day, it's probably a proximity to the event. I think that if it made history or is something that, that shaped you know, it was, it's a window into the, the lifestyle or the mindset or something of a time period. I think that that is information that should be shared. And, or eventually depicted. Yeah, exactly. Because also at the end of the day, with, you know, reading levels going way, way down, this is a, this is a history for a lot of people. This is the only way that people are going to get this information. Is, However is, much that may make you uncomfortable. Yeah, but at the end of the day, that's why I'm like, you know, you gotta, you gotta spread as much information as possible. You're like, sure, you can have movies like Pain and Gain that are based off of a true story, but are also just so, so ridiculous. That Be as honest as you can. Yeah, yeah, you know. But with, with, with reason, you know, I think that, you know, movies like the, 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 the Steve Jobs movie. You know, another depiction of true events, but they're they're shaped in a way that, that creates a narrative. But also, once you, you create a narrative, it sticks in your brain better. You know, you it's like having a melody. You know, you, you know the landmarks of the, of the movie. That's why the human brain lays things that are even completely unrelated events into a chronology. Mm-hmm. You know, the order of your day is not a narrative. No. But the way that you tell it to people, it is. Yeah. Um, and, no, I think that at the end of the day, I think that everything sh- should be talked about and, you know, obviously put the, the appropriate warnings and things on on context, on, on content, because some things are not for all ages, but that does not mean that information does not need to be told. No, absolutely. Um well, and, you know, I guess some of it is also really just a question of what the story calls for in depiction as well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you can you can depict an event close to an event or talk about the circumstance of an event without depicting it explicitly. Looming Tower led all the way up to 9-11 without explicitly showing 9-11. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, um, and we've never seen a movie where we watch Lincoln get shot. 
No. You know, and so I think it's also a little bit of that question also of, of literally the active depiction itself. Well, then I, I don't know if that's necessarily relevant mm-hmm. in order to tell the story of the event itself. Yeah. I think that you just said very excellent examples of why we don't exactly need to see the bullet go through his head in mm-hmm. like weird ultra slow-mo or something because this is a Zack Snyder movie. Or, you know, even just Scorsese-ish, you know, just sort of, you know, blam, and then you watch Lincoln smack on the floor. Like, yeah. do you need that? No, you don't. Well, because at the end of the day, if the story is told correctly, you will already have gone on this emotional journey and up gravitas. to this exactly up to this point of climax, and you will be able to feel for wherever this character is on their journey, without necessarily having to go through the. It's like it's like it's like the the argument of sex on screen is when does it become gratuitous? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a case by case basis answer. Exactly, exactly. You know. Some things, it's totally appropriate to go thus far. Other things, we'll just skip right on over that. It will imply it, and then we'll move on. You know, something like the Deepwater Horizon event, mm-hmm. where not a lot of people watched the oil rig burn, understood what exactly happened. Mm-hmm. We're going to understand if we didn't show the rig failing and detonating. Mm-hmm. we're going to really get what happened. Mm-hmm. So even though it was real life and traumatic and people did die in the act, if we didn't show it, people weren't really going to get it. Well, yeah, it's also like putting the Titanic boat sinking in, in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't just skip over that. Mm-hmm. It, it's the whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, because also I don't need to show everything, but I also need to show some graphic, you know, instances of this to 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 show people that this is a deadly thing and people you know got hurt in many different ways during this and some were more tragic than others but that's also a part of this narrative that we're Mm -hmm. telling you right now well and it's all about the responsibility of course also of the filmmaker if you choose to and it goes back to your discussion on sex if you choose to show it you have to be responsible yeah it has to make sense or else it's just unnecessary it's Mm -hmm. wasting actual time in your movie they could be put towards, I don't know, plot and character development. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you had to rank uh, or, or, or rate Pain and Gain out of five, what would you give Pain and Gain? I'm going to give Pain and Gain like a, a solid... I'm going to give Pain and Gain a solid four. Okay. I think that... Um, I think that it's a blast. I do not think that it is a perfect movie, but I think that it is having a lot of fun and it is a lot of fun to watch. Honestly, I put this movie right there next to my love for the Fast and Furious franchise. It's, okay. It's, it's mindless dribble and it's a great time. Um, I'm going to go and give it a four. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... I think Michael Bay for me is a little bit of an enigma as a, as a filmmaker because I really debate back and forth, especially with movies like this, what's accident and what's intentional. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy Michael Bay as a filmmaker for the most part, if only also just because of how um, unaf- unabashedly him he is. Mm-hmm. And I really respect that. Um, 
and this is probably my favorite of his movies mm-hmm. that I've ever seen. I think it's like this, The Rock, maybe even the first Transformers movies, the first Transformer movie, the first one, um, are probably some of my favorite Michael Bay movies out there. Um, and I think that if you look at those three, you kind of see him hitting the same notes in weirdly different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that this is probably one of my favorites of his. It's one of my favorite Dwayne Johnson performances, period. Um, it's one of my favorite Mark Wahlberg performances. You're telling me that, that Maui isn't your favorite Dwayne The Rock Johnson performance? It's, it's one of his better ones lately, but it's also nowhere outside of his comfort zone. Well, he had to rap in it. Um, no comment. <laughs> because then I would have to start talking about Lynn, and I'm not going down that rabbit hole right oh now. Oh my gosh. Um, so, uh, that's kind of how I feel about it. Uh, moving on, uh, our final chat will be very brief. What have we been watching? Honest to God, nothing. Um... However, we are going to go and see Nope this weekend. We are. Very excited about that. I, I love... would also like to see Marcel the Shell sometime. Just yes. Just like throw that out there into the universe. No, yes. Um, we could maybe do a double feature over the weekend Ooh. or something like that. Um, I think Marcel is also on digital mm. for, for rental. I could be wrong, but we can look into that. Ooh. Um, but also go and, and read my review on Marcel. Yes, do you. Um... So that's kind of what we're watching. We're going to be watching Nope. Um, so come back next week and you'll hear about how we how we felt about it. Yeah. Um, the big thing that I wanted to talk about was um, two trailers came out. One of them we're not going to talk about really at all. Um, it was House of the Dragon from Game of Thrones. Uh, I think it looked cheap and... Um, like the kind of stuff that Game of Thrones was trying to intentionally satirize with some of its intentional narrative antithesis decisions, you know, with like the murder of Ned. Um, and I think that this show looks like it's trying to pander um, to people who were who were pissed off still about how Game of Thrones went. Um, but the main thing that I wanted to talk about was the exciting trailer. Halloween ends. I've totally messed up the tune, but whatever. Um, I'm super pumped about it. I love the Halloween franchise. I think that it's it's doing a fun stuff even when it's bad. Um, and I'm super pumped about this movie. I think that it's it's going to be an interesting um, end to to this to this saga. Um, but, like, also, I'm totally ready for, like, a huge, epic finale because I loved Halloween Kills. Um, and if if that movie just, like, it just blew me away, I'm, I'm pumped about this one. This one apparently will have a smaller body count. Okay. Well, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be gnarly. No. Um, and honestly, you know, if as long as the kills are good... And the tension is there, and the character is there. I don't care. Yeah. Um, the first Halloween has barely a body count. And it's incredibly effective still. 
Well, yeah, because it's all the the Scooby Dooism of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Where's he gonna come from? Um, and I love Michael, and I love Lori, and this has been so exciting to see such a a crafted trilogy for these characters. Yes, um, we get to see some some flashback Lori face. So I'm I'm hoping that we're gonna you know get to see a different perspective um, character as well because I feel like the last one was was not focused it was like very focused on like the granddaughter and and, and the ensemble this halloween kills part of the reason the body count was so big is it's an ensemble no for sure and they really like to to switch around between who's getting the most perspective because it's also we have a lot of michael perspective as well mm-hmm. in that movie um but i'm super excited about the idea of going into like what, what it's like to be Lori a little bit in this um this new one which should which should be an interesting turn to to the narrative as well because we don't get to actually hear from Lori at all you know other than the the first movie way way back many centuries ago um we don't really get to follow Lori around a lot in either of these films yeah I mean um you know in the new Halloween and in Halloween Kills she is again part of an ensemble even in in the 2018 Halloween like we introduce uh Karen we introduce um uh the the granddaughter Allison Allison um you know we we really flesh out the cast around her and it's a little bit more like age 20 where we've got these other teenage characters mm-hmm. and that's where the focus and actually Lori. yeah yeah and so like i i i think that you really get that kind of approach to it um I'm so excited. I, I really, truly love this franchise. I I adore what David Gr- Gordon Green has done with it. I think that, um, I mean, you know, if you go back and listen to the slasher extravaganza, I rave about these movies. I love Halloween. I truly do. It's, it is my slasher franchise. And, um, I'm so excited for this. I, I, I don't want this franchise to end and but that's also how I know that it's really working for me and why I also am so excited for it to close out is because good storytelling has a good end yeah and for I'm, sure. I'm so ready and it's gonna it's gonna suck to like you know walk out go. of that theater yeah to be like well that's the end of it but like also that's such good closure yeah that's important too as well you know mm-hmm but it's going to be so exciting. Yes. Yes, I'm so pumped. Um, Excitement. That's pretty much all that we have for y'all uh, this week. Thank you guys, of course, for listening. Next week we have our final July episode, uh, which is a double feature of Piranha. We're going to go <laughs> and we're going to do the original Piranha, which is from... Uh, the, the House of Roger Corman, directed by Joe Dante, who did Gremlins and, and Small Soldiers. Uh, we reviewed the Gremlins films that he did uh, back in Christmas. Uh, and then, of course, the new Piranha, Piranha 3D, um, which is, again, kind of its own spoof, and I'm, I'm really pumped for it. Uh, it's going to be a good episode. I, I've never seen either of the Piranha films. No, neither have I. Uh, so I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty looking forward to this one. <laughs> we made money for these films. Yeah. 
<laughs> I bought them. Yeah. Both of them. Yeah, we blind. Have, we have a physical copy that we mm-hmm. neither of us have seen these movies. Fantastic. Uh, but I'm I'm beyond excited for it, and I hope that y'all come back next week to check that out. Be sure to check out last week's episode when we did our neo noir episode about body heat and wild things. Like I said, check out our Marcel review. Uh, and that's pretty much all that we have for y'all this week. Um. Just in case he is, in fact, listening. Uh, hey, Bobby. How you doing? <laughs> I'll talk to you at work later. Uh, have a good weekend, everyone. We look forward to talking to y'all next week. Bye! Bye.